Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Today, we're going back in time. Yeah, that's something we do a lot in our shows. This time, we're going all the way back to what Cherokee activist and local historian Albert Bender calls ancient Nashville. Everybody who lives in modern Nashville needs to know that there was a huge, huge Native American city here 900 years ago. Later in the show, we're going to dig in a little deeper. What was ancient Nashville like? And how many indigenous peoples lived here long before the rest of us settled in the region? We'll learn more about our indigenous roots and learn what it's like to be indigenous in Nashville today. But first, it's time for At Us. Yes, every Thursday, we're making time to read the comments so you don't have to. I'm encouraging you to literally at us on Twitter at This Is Nashville, on Instagram at This Is Nashville underscore WPLN, and at WPLN News on Facebook. Joining me now with a look back at the past week is our digital lead, Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Hey, Anna. Hey, Khalil. Glad to be back in the studio again. Glad to have you with us. So what are our listeners talking about? Well, have you seen our Twitter mentions lately? Uh, Okay, yes. Before you say it, (laughs) I know, I know what some have been talking about. All right, so I accidentally said I-25 instead of I-24, when talking about the Bell Road exit that's such a mess for our installment of Curious Nashville yesterday. My bad, y'all, as I said yesterday. It's okay. I did really get a kick out of Bailey tweeting us, hey, this is Nashville. Where exactly is this Bell Road exit on I-25? Just asking for a friend. Yes, I saw that as well. And it was a human error. What can I say? My bad again. So what else have we been hearing Okay, so on a more serious note, (laughs) last week we received an email um, fact-checking something we wrote online about our um, March 28th episode on visual arts in Nashville. So this wasn't mentioned on the air, uh, but online we misstated that there are no Masters of Fine Arts programs in Nashville. Our senior producer, Steve Harouche, was actually able to get in contact with the listener that reached out to us. My name is John Sewell. I live in Wedgwood, Houston. And I wanted to uh, reach out and contact you guys to say that uh, Watkins does have uh, an MFA program that they spent years building up, and then that transferred with Watkins to Belmont, uh, and it's still going, and they're growing, and they put a lot of love into making the thing, so I just wanted to make sure they got a shout-out. So um, just a quick local history lesson. The Watkins College of Arts was a small independent school in Nashville established in 1885. It merged with Belmont in 2020 uh, due to financial issues and low enrollment at the time. So John also pointed out that we wrote that no local museums have a permanent art collection. Yeah, so just to set the record straight there, um, Nashville's best known museum is the Frist, and that doesn't have a permanent collection. But um, the galleries at Vanderbilt, Cheekwood, and Fisk University do. Um, I totally think this is the universe trying to tell us that we need to get the show team out of the studio and to go visit some local galleries more often. I'm totally down for that. Field trip. (laughs) Yes. So what else are listeners saying? 
We got a lot of positive feedback about Monday's episode on Fort Negley and the former Bass Street neighborhood, which was Nashville's first post-emancipation black neighborhood. Alejandro tweeted us to say that they've lived in Nashville since 2006 and in Tennessee for most of their life, but that they have never heard of this, quote, gem of history. Also, our guest, Angela Sutton, thanked us for how we navigated the conversation with two of our other guests, Janine Blackman and Gary Burke, both of whom are descendants of Bass Street. Her comments really speak to what we're trying to do here with This Is Nashville. It's important to hear from officials and academics, of course, but our priority has been to really highlight the lived experience of Middle Tennesseans. You know, and we'll definitely do more stories about Fort Negley in the future because there are so many moving parts with this master plan and future archaeological digs. Yes, that's something our listeners can keep an eye, I mean, ear out for. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to our digital lead, Anna Gallegos-Cannon, for this roundup. Anna, we'll see you next week, same time, same place. I'll see you on Thursday. Don't forget to at us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Let's keep the comments coming. Also, fill out our community survey to let us know what topics you want us to cover at thisisnashville.org. All right, speaking of at us, after the break, we're going to pick up with some feedback we got from an email from a listener about our first episode. He wrote in to challenge some of the data he heard about ancient indigenous Nashville. So guess what? We decided to do a whole show about it. Stay with us. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Today, we are journeying back to ancient Nashville. Who were the first inhabitants of this land, and how did they live? In our very first episode of This is Nashville, Cherokee historian and activist Albert Bender joined us in a conversation about so-called old Nashville and new Nashville. It's been a time of great change for our city and region, and Albert shared his perspective on ancient Nashville. He said that over 900 years ago, ancient Nashville was a Native American city with tens of thousands of residents. Now, after the show, we got an email from a listener disputing those numbers. So we decided to do a whole show about it, to give this topic the time it needs so we can dig in a little deeper and gain a better understanding of our indigenous past. So to get more clarity on just how many people lived in prehistoric Nashville, we reached out to archaeologist Aaron Dieterwolf, Dieterwolf, co-author of Mastodons to Mississippians, Adventures in Nashville's Deep Past. So before the arrival of European settlers in Tennessee, this area was occupied by Native Americans. And the first indigenous Native Americans to arrive in this area did so during the end of the last ice age, at least 14,000 years ago. Starting about 900 AD, we begin to see this movement into what we identify as the Mississippian period, where you start seeing the construction of these large towns and things that we would even recognize as cities being built around groups of earthen mounds. To be clear, we call this period Mississippian, but that's an archaeological term for people who were indigenous to Southeast North America. We don't know exactly what they called themselves, but we know that they're ancestors of native tribes we do know today. 
And during that period, the population locally seems to increase dramatically, and that's evidenced by the number of recorded archaeological sites and also by the size of some of those larger sites. Aaron explains that it's always difficult to estimate population sizes because so much of the archaeological record is lost or destroyed by time or construction. Now, there is an 1823 account from Judge John Haywood, one of Tennessee's earliest historians, that addresses this. And this is what our guest Albert Bender was referring to. It mentions the large number of Native American burial sites uncovered during the development of neighborhoods we now call Germantown and Salemtown. And he has this kind of offhand remark in which he says that based on the number of graves that are being encountered, he thinks that the population that once resided here in the indefinite past for him was 20 times that of the present day. And so he's basing that on the number of skeletons that are being encountered during home construction. The thing is, Judge Haywood's number is based on the bodies found in just two parts of town. And we don't know which bodies came from which time period, because 19th century construction crews weren't exactly conducting archaeological research. But based on the number of archaeological sites in Middle Tennessee and the size of some of those sites, we can say conservatively that there were thousands and thousands of people living here in the Mississippian period. Now, in Williamson and Davidson County alone, there are 30 mounds of earth, and there's evidence of settlements and villages built around those mounds. And then archaeologically, the areas between those sites are filled in with smaller villages, with single-family farmsteads, and all of that is arranged around roads and routes and traces that we still recognize today and that are actually part of our urban landscape of Nashville today. And so we have this much different picture of Nashville than it being this uninhabited wilderness untouched by man. And instead, we recognize that during the Mississippian period, Nashville was an urban landscape, that there were thousands of people living here permanently, creating cemeteries, building architecture, you know, living along both sides of the Cumberland River and all the way up its tributaries. So while it's really difficult to estimate the exact population that lived here in prehistoric Nashville, there is archaeological e evidence that a city of thousands of people there's a lot we can't know for certain about ancient Nashville, but we do know that these are ancestors of many modern tribes we know today. The people who lived here prior to the 15th century were Native American. They were ancestral Native American populations. Just because we don't know exactly which modern tribal group they were ancestral to doesn't mean that there's no connection there. Thanks to our producer, Rose Gilbert, and archaeologist Aaron Dieterwolf for helping to break that down for us. I'd like to welcome Albert Bender back to the program. He's a Cherokee activist and historian. Albert, thanks for being here. Glad to be here. So we know that there was a large urban population here. Why is that so important for us to remember? Well, it's so important to remember because, one, it will give an idea and an awareness of the greatness and gloriousness of the Native American population and how advanced the Native American population was. Because we're talking about a population in uh, 1300 that was 
approximately 400,000 inhabitants. So it's it's hard to estimate that number for sure, as we just heard. But tell us, tell me more about what it, what it looked like for the people of Nashville back then. Well, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about a large, huge, vast, ancient, bustling Native American city. We're talking about a city composed of a very uh, skillful leadership, a city of engineers, a city of artisans, a city of warriors, a city of uh, families that inhabited what is now downtown Nashville. And again, downtown Nashville sits on top of the ancient city. And we're talking about a city that encompassed both banks of the uh, Cumberland River. The east bank of the Cumberland River, which is now being looked at by large corporations for development, was also part and parcel of the ancient city. In the east bank of the Cumberland River, uh, the uh, city that existed there extends also into uh, significant parts of what is now East Nashville. If, you, if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. Mm-hmm. We're talking this hour about the ancient history of the first inhabitants of this land and discovering more about what life was like during that time. I'd like to welcome our next guest, Charles Robinson. He is a member of the Choctaw Nation who serves on the Tennessee Archaeological Advisory Council. Charles, welcome to This is Nashville. Charles, are you with us? So, you know, we heard... Can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Welcome to the show, sir. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. So, you know, we heard at the top of this segment about the dense urban environment that existed during the Mississippian period, right here. Later on, our state was home to modern-day peoples, including the Shawnee, Cherokee, Choctaw, and Muscogee Creek. What happened to those populations? Well, a lot of those tribes and those people groups uh, only came into Middle Tennessee uh, different times throughout the year. Uh, my people, the Choctaw, for instance, were primarily down in what we know as Mississippi and Alabama today, but they were not, this was not necessarily a permanent home up here for the Choctaw. Many kind of came and went seasonally for hunting or for trading or for ceremony. What else happened to them? Oh, well, then after all that, of course, when uh, our people began to settle uh, with, with, the, with the Removal Act and, and the various uh, you know, ways the government began to, uh, what became known as the Trail of Tears, began to send our people uh, to west of the Mississippi River, uh, you know, and, and well, we know what happened with that, but they all just kind of dispersed, I guess. But what I would say is that Middle Tennessee, what we know here is Nashville, um, for the most part, uh, particularly my people in Choctaw, this is not a permanent home for us. Again, we came through here, and this is a place uh, for a number of reasons that a lot of tribes would come through seasonally and spend time here, but then go back uh, to their ancestral grounds. We heard just a bit ago about some of the challenges that keep us from fully understanding our indigenous past. And Charles, you know, what are some reasons for that? 
Well, so much of it is that uh, we're kind of out of sight, out of mind, mm-hmm. right? People do not necessarily, uh, when, when you don't see natives running around in, 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 in your community, you kind of forget we exist. Uh, and so the issues uh, that our people have always dealt with have kind of uh, been overlooked uh, for a few reasons. One of which, because for most natives, we do not live in areas that um, were large enough voting block uh, for people running for office. So they don't need to necessarily cater to our needs into our um, into the things that are important to native people. Uh, so it's easy to overlook us. You know, you're on the State Archaeological Advisory Council. With, so tell me, why is it important to have Native people involved in excavation on these sites? Well, to, uh, to our Native people, there is a, a respect um, that we have for our ancestors, for our past, for our, uh, for, for our culture. Uh, we seem to place a greater importance on that than, uh, than non-Natives do generally speaking. Uh, and so when you come, when we come across items through, uh, through digs or archeology span uh, to get a native perspective on the value and the importance of, of having these things, retaining them um, is, is very, very important because it reflects such a huge part of our history. As you know, once you dig something up, you can, you can put it on display in a museum, um, but it's just not quite the same. Now people get to, it's like it's like going to a zoo and seeing animals in a zoo. You get to learn a little bit about the monkeys and the lions and stuff, but you don't really know them, right? And so, in our attempt to preserve uh, history uh, in Tennessee, which I, I I'm thankful they were able to do this, um, we're really helping out future generations as well. Albert, I'd like to get your your perspective on that. Well, um, I think that uh, I would uh, completely agree with what um, Charles is saying. And uh, the reason for having a Native person on the Archaeological Advisory uh, Council is so that when remains are discovered, that the remains are treated with the respect and dignity and according to tribal protocols. And uh, that standard has to be observed. And again, I think that's one of the uh, primary reasons for having a Native person on the um, advisory council. You know, Charles, you grew up in the Choctaw community in Oklahoma. Then you moved here to work in the music industry, where your community, as you said, is significantly less visible. Tell me what that change was like for you. Well, it was interesting because here in Middle Tennessee, when people meet natives, we're more of a novelty. Uh, there is a great respect I, I find that people have for our native people here, and they want to share about their native ancestry as well. Uh, uh, but uh, sadly, because you, we, don't, we don't have a long history or cultural community here of native people, it's easy. Um, it's easy to just kind of fall into the glamorized dances with wolves view of who native people are. And for, for many natives uh, who do not know their, their culture, our ceremonies, our languages, these things, we kind of always default to the Hollywood version of who we are. And, uh, uh, but I have found that in Middle Tennessee, I've been extremely well received. 
we do work in, on Native communities throughout the U.S. and Canada through my wife's organization. And uh, I find the border towns around the reservations out west are extremely racist and uh, um, it, it's a, a tough place for Natives to be in those border towns. But here in Middle Tennessee, we've been received with open arms, which, is, uh, which has been very nice. Albert, have you found similar experiences when you venture outside of Middle Tennessee in your work? Well, uh, yes, I've had uh, some very uh, negative experiences that I have encountered in the western areas of the um, United States. And um, at one time, I lived in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. And when I first went to Phoenix, I was walking down the street just uh, dressed normally, no uh, tribal regalia of any kind uh, being adorned. And um, a carload of uh, young white boys passed by me and started calling me a wagon burner. Now, I had never encountered the term wagon burner before. And uh, I, after I thought about it, I said, well, maybe they're referring to the stereotype of Native Americans attacking wagon trains in the old days. And the more I thought about it, I said, well, they uh, call me that again. I said, well, burn the wagons again. <laughs> but there is a lot of prejudice uh, toward Native Americans in different parts of the western areas of the United States. Again, as Charles had said, particularly on around uh, reservation uh, border towns. And I also had a very negative experience uh, when we first moved here. Myself and my family, my wife and son, we uh, frequently travel back and forth to the um, Eastern Cherokee Reservation. And um, I write for the uh, American Indian Press and other publications. And so we um, checked in or attempted to check into a motel for the night. And as soon as I walked into the lobby, the um, one of the proprietors, who was a lady, she said, well, uh, hold on, I have to get someone else to talk to you. And so this very uh, incensed older white man comes out to the uh, counter and tells me point blank, uh, you can't stay here because we don't rent rooms to Indians. And this was, as I said, near the Cherokee Reservation in eastern North Carolina. So border towns do tend to be uh, extremely prejudiced in many cases toward Native Americans, even here in the southern parts of the United States. I don't think I would have been invited into that hotel either. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, taking it back to Nashville and looking at what the changes that are happening. We all know Nashville is changing very, very fast. There's development, and wherever there's development, we're more likely to find archaeological sites, but also to damage them. Albert, is that a concern for you? Yes, that is uh, definitely a paramount concern, and I will give you an example. In 2014, when the excavations or digging started for the Sound Stadium, myself and other people in the Native community asked and requested um, and also demanded that some type of archaeological 
excavation be done of the area before construction began. And as a result of our efforts, that is when the remains were found of the ruins of the vast ancient Native American city. So that's why it's so important for archaeological excavations to be done wherever you have development done in Middle Tennessee. I mean, what happens to these archaeological sites that hold so much information and so many stories? Well, uh, without um, proper monitoring, the sites are simply destroyed. Charles, I'd like to get your response to that. Yeah, I think it's, uh, we, we see these um, burial sites and, and uh, towns and communities all over the place. Anytime there's a, a new construction site going on in Middle Tennessee, and uh, it's a shame once we destroy some of these artifacts because there's so much we can learn about the people that used to live here uh, long before we did. There's so much we had that they still have to offer us the educational aspect of it for our children, the ceremonial aspect of it, the culture, all of these things that can benefit us today, make us better people, better humans today. Uh, but sadly, too many times just to try and rush through a project, we're just bulldozing over these things, cherry picking what we want out of them or the whoever's on the site, you know, taking what they want and bulldozing and, uh, and moving on, right? Without trying to do it without ever mentioning uh, that, you know, that they found anything. So that's a shame because it really still has so much to offer. Um, and, and I really lean on the educational aspect of it for our children. Uh, and I want our children and the school kids, especially to understand the value of uh, retaining uh, part of our past. And, and I don't mean just the, you know, last couple hundred years past, but, you know, uh, 500 years, 1,000 years, 2,000 years, all these things we can learn. Um, let's, let's try and hold on to those best we can. That's Charles Robertson. Charles, make sure to stay with us throughout this break. I want to thank Albert Bender, Cherokee activist and historian. Thank you, sir, for your time and your expertise. Really appreciate it. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about here and now for indigenous communities in Nashville and Middle Tennessee. Tweet us your questions and comments at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kalona, and this is Nashville. Before the break, we talked about Nashville's native roots. Now we're going to talk about the present moment and what that means and how that begins with the land. Tech giant Oracle is set to move into the East Bank. Some have voiced concerns about the development, including our last guest, Cherokee activist Albert Bender. He and others have voiced concerns that this kind of development will further erase Native American history. That's why he organized the gathering last November on the East Bank. Melba Chakote Eads, a citizen of the Muscogee Creek Nation of Oklahoma, performed a land acknowledgement on the site for a small crowd. Let us acknowledge the land that we are standing on. So I will give you a land acknowledgement. We acknowledge that we are 
on traditional land of indigenous people, including the Mississippian people and their descendants, the Yuchi, the Muscogee, Quisadi, Shawnee, Chickasaw, Cherokee Nations. Nashville is located between the ancient city of Moundville, uh, Mound Bottom, excuse me, Browns Creek, Castilian Springs Mound, Sellers Farm, and many other sacred places. And now after I have said the land acknowledgement and those indigenous people that were here from millennium, I would like to also state that we would like to honor, acknowledge, and recognize indigenous tribes and the tribal nations who were forcibly removed from the original habitants. They are the keepers of the land and water, and they now make their present day Nashville and in the areas of Tennessee. Tribes that were forcibly removed to lands west of the Mississippi River to Oklahoma are the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Muscogee Creek, and the Seminole. So those are the main points that we want to say. The Trail of Tears came right through Nashville here. We're standing on indigenous land. We are now calling the mayor to recognize the indigenous place and the sacred place of these mounds. We're joined now by student Dante Reyna, who is advocating for land acknowledgement at Vanderbilt. They are Sotsil Maya and a member of the Indigenous Scholars at Vanderbilt. Dante, welcome to This is Nashville. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Tell us about this work you're doing to get your university to use land acknowledgements. Well, I think it's important because when we talk about the land, uh, we must recognize that the land is a part of who we are, and it's a part of who the people were here and who are here. And it's a mixture of our blood, our past, our present, and our future. And to acknowledge the land is, is to honor the relationship and to understand the longstanding history that has brought people to reside on the land. And this is not by any means new. Many indigenous people across the world, dating back centuries, honor the land in different ways. How did you learn to honor the land? Uh, specifically in my tribe, we um, make a traditional drink called Tesuino. And every, every year we um, honor the land by offering it the first sip of our drink. And the first sip of, and that drink is made out of the first harvest of the year. Our next guest is also trying to carve out space for indigenous communities by building a cultural resource center. Sally Wells is president of NAIA, the Native American Indian Association. Sally, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. It's an honor for me to talk with y'all and uh, listen to you with what's going on. Pleasure to have you with us. Tell us, tell us more about the Cultural Center. Uh, you mean Native American Indian Association? Y yes, Native American Indian Association, it's going to be here within a few more years. We had started dreaming about this about uh, maybe I, 1991, somewhere in that area. We started to build the center here for the Indian peoples and non-Indian peoples, too. So uh, we started 
and we didn't have no money, so we started this donation, and we started having a festival and things like that. And we wrote some grants to help us out, and we carried on from that. And we're getting closer to build this center. I think uh, most of the groundworks is it's just about finished. So after that, we're going to start building. So it'll be here before what would 2,100 the... or something. <laughs> okay. Okay, that's fantastic. Tell me, what would the significance of having this center be for you and your communities? When uh, myself and uh, Ray Emanuel, this was back in the uh, 70s, uh, we were here in Middle Tennessee. We didn't know if there was any Indians in the area or what. We didn't know. Ray, and I, Ray is Columbia Indian, and we, her, him and I met uh, in his business store, and we start talking about it, and we keep talking about it, and we keep talking about it, and see what we can do. So we decided we could have social gathering, so and uh, see how many Indians can show up. So that's how we started, and uh, from there on, people helped us a lot. Uh, people like mayor and uh, some of the state people, they help us and they give us advice what we need to do, and advice is what we need the most, and of course money too, but advice is what's good working thing that we did, and taking that their advice and do what they say, and, and that was working really well, so uh, that's how we started, and the uh, first meeting we have was at the Cumberland River, uh, right in front of a courthouse. We met there, and that's where we decided we're going to have Native American Indian succession. So we passed the hat out for money to send the people a letter. And to buy, with that money, we were going to buy stamps. And that's how we started. And we keep going and keep going. Sometimes we get down, but we get up and go, keep going. So... That's where we are today because of that. And we uh, have come meet people. And there are, there are quite a few Indians in, in Davidson County. I know that. So that's how we feel like that there's some more. And then what we need to do is uh, raise some money. And some of these Indian people out of reservation come to Nashville, and they just come without the money. They don't know where they're going to sleep at. So when they come and they contact us, and we have try to help him find him a job and give him a place to stay a little bit, not two, three months rent pay, and uh, they get a job and work and take care of themselves. And then uh, when they, if they have ins- no insurance on that, their health, we have to uh, help them out on their health, like buying the medicine for them or pay doctor bills for them. And then sometimes we pay electrical bill or rent. All this, that's what we do this many years that we organize this organization. So for the center, it's a resource center and a gathering place. Talk to me about yes. the, the resources you all will provide people. Re- resource is going to be like, you know, me, myself, 
I go to school. And when teacher called me and asked me if I could come in, uh, especially in November, October and November, they asked me if I could come and speak to the students that they don't like to know more about Native American Indians. So I do go to school and do the presentations. I've been to many schools in Middle Tennessee. So uh, this building is going to be one of the part of the building is going to be where we're going to, the kids, if they want to know something about Native, they're going to come to our building and, and uh, see the maybe video or tape or listen to tape or reading a book, things like that. It's This is what's going to be all about. And, and uh, if we have enough, enough land to do this, we're thinking about setting a teepee up and for the, uh, the uh, kids when they camp out for the weekend, they can do that also. But I don't know if we're going to have land big enough to do that. Charles Robinson is still here with us. Charles, you know, what are your thoughts about this on the Cultural Center and its significance for our Native communities? You know, uh, it's interesting. One of the, the segments uh, I was listening to before we all came on air was talking about uh, local museums and the Frisk Museum, who, which has some fantastic exhibits that come through. But uh, in Middle Tennessee here, we, don't, we do not have uh, a museum of any sort that really focuses in on our Native people and, 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 our, and the Indigenous people that have been here for so long. And with this cultural center, that's my understanding. That's going to be a big part of it. Will give uh, kids and uh, and visitors uh, a place to come to learn about the native history and the ancestry of the folks that were here long before them. Uh, and it's long, long overdue for uh, for Middle Tennessee to have something like this. I think personally, it'll be uh, become one of the biggest tourist spots in Middle Tennessee uh, because it, it, it garners such great interest from outsiders. Um, you know, when people come to town now, they all, they, you know, they go to Ryman, they go to downtown uh, Nashville, they come out to, to Franklin, to the Carn Plantation, the Corner House, all these historical places. Uh, and it's, we're long overdue for, to have a Native American cultural center that could show them about our Native people as well. Now, Sally, you grew up in Ripley, out in Western Tennessee. Tell, yep. tell me, what was that like for you? My parents moved us in West Tennessee, Lauderdale County, uh, maybe late 1950s. And they moved out here on relocation from federal government. And of course, those kids didn't want to come, but they didn't, we couldn't do nothing about it. We, we moved with them, so we came out here and ended up in West Tennessee. Uh, it was, well, not. Living on reservation, I left there about maybe 11 or 12 years old, and I felt like I grew up on the reservation. That was my home. Mm-hmm. But then we moved to Tennessee, and that was hard because we left our land, our home, and come down to Tennessee. And and that's because... Uh, it was hard time on re- living on reservation, food and otherwise that other stuff that we got to have and we couldn't afford it. 
So that's why my parents feel like they can survive. We can survive with move out here. So that's how we moved out here. And uh, I went, and we didn't come to stay here. We went to back home every season. Like we came on probably August, and then we moved back sometime early October, a couple times, and then maybe third times they decided that we're going to make a permanent home here. We're not going to go back. So that's how I ended up in this. It was a hard time. Uh, a lot of things that happening, like Albert was talking about uh, races and, and and things like that was happening. And, uh, of course, I was young, don't really understand all that much about it, but I, later time, I, when I think about it, this is what happened to us at, at that time. So we was in school, we was not treated equal, I didn't think, when I think about it. And things like that that was going on. And of course, uh, when I, we were living on the reservation, we didn't go outside of the reservation. We stayed in, in the reservation. But sometimes uh, my parents had to go downtown, things like that, to get some groceries, things like that. And we were treated differently. So those kind of things happened. I grew up with that. And it was not easy either. I can't imagine if that it was. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lake We're talking about the indigenous communities here in Middle Tennessee and why what they would like to see preserved in the present and future. Charles Robinson is still here with us. As a member of the Choctaw Nation, you mentioned earlier in the show what it was like to come to Middle Tennessee from Oklahoma. How do you keep the, your traditions alive here? Well, we still, my wife and I, my wife is Lakota and Blackfoot, so we still uh, practice some of the ceremonial stuff, the prayer way of praying uh, with our children. Uh, so we, we're very intentional about doing that locally. Uh, but we also spend time with my wife's organization traveling to Native communities throughout uh, South Dakota, Montana, Idaho, up into Canada, all over. Um, uh, so, but it, we just have to be very intentional about it. We got a tweet from Michael Hardy. He says, my grandpa Hardy had Cherokee blood. Are there resources for people like me to research if their families have Native American heritage here in Tennessee? Charles, can you answer that? Yeah, so if you can, uh, the the key is to be able to trace back your ancestry uh, to somebody who is um, either on the the rolls, the dolls rolls in uh, Oklahoma or, or through the Oklahoma tribe, or to Cherokee, North Carolina. Uh, it's uh, you can contact the tribes. Uh, I, I'm speaking specifically to this fellow who who wrote in, um, but you can check with the individual tribes that you think you might be an ancestry to, and uh, and they can give help provide some of the resources to help you research that. Uh, but the key is going to be able to trace yourself back through birth certificates uh, to, uh, you know, to somebody within that tribe. Dante, you grew up in Mexico. Tell me, what was your upbringing like? Uh, well, it was a daily struggle. Um, I grew up in Mexico. I grew up in Ciudad Juarez, which is in the border town uh, opposite of El Paso, Texas. 
And so it was a daily reality that I would uh, cross the border every day to get to school and to do, um, and to just um, participate in American life in order to get an education so I can push my family ahead. Uh, my family's from Southern Mexico and my mom's from Central, uh, from Central Mexico. They both have, they both come from tribal backgrounds. And so crossing the border and being part of um, being a first generation American, I faced a lot of um, the same kind of racist sentiments, but in different ways. Mostly people, um, because of the way I look, questioning if I was American or um, making fun of my indigenous heritage uh, from both my mother and my father's side. So that that was um, what it was like. And from uh, Mexico uh, during the during the time that I was a child, um, the Mexican government decided to have the quote unquote war on the narco. And so uh, this war on uh, the narco had a lot of negative consequences to the common person to the point that you would see um, people hanging from bridges and uh, other kind of intimid uh, intimidation tactics aimed at, against the government and uh, to sort of uh, show um, how much power they had and that the people were caught in the middle ground uh, with them mostly suffering the casualties. Hearing Charles's story and Sally's and, and some of Albert's, you know, I'm curious, what's your reaction when, uh, what, what I really want to ask you is a lot of times we don't think of other indigenous people when we have this conversation. How important is it for you that, that folks understand about the indigenous struggles of people in Mexico, maybe Pacific Islanders, people from Alaska, the wide, vast diaspora of indigenous folks? I think it's very important. Um, at Vanderbilt itself, we, we have the Indigenous Scholars Organization, which is the only organization on campus for Indigenous students. And we serve as a gathering space for Native American, Alaskan Native Pacific Islander, and all other Indigenous students on campus. And it, the, the campus, um, the Indigenous student body only make up about one to 2%. And I think it's building that solidarity between Indigenous people no matter the nationality or what um, kind of imaginary borders are created for us, that, uh, that I think that's where true power lies is realizing that I, as an indigenous Sotil Maya, um, as I'm living here in Nashville, Tennessee, should honor the elders like Albert Bender uh, that are doing their work here and uh, following in their guidance. I want to talk about how you all celebrate your heritage and traditions. Dante, how do you celebrate your culture and keep that tradition alive? I, it's a little bit difficult. Um, the um, I, as a Sotil Maya, um, kind of have to see how I can retain my tradition, but there's there's very limited community here, being so far away from home. I still participate in tradition on my own and hope to one day teach my children about my tradition. But um, I think it's very difficult to engage in that tradition. I sometimes uh, ponder what, how I can engage community and engage other people in, in my tradition and uh, in other people's. But 
it, it's a little bit difficult being so far away from home. Charles, I have 30 seconds. I'd like to hear from you. So uh, it's important to remember that the native people, both in the United States, Canada, and Mexico and further south, they're all indigenous people. It was governments and uh, the white governments that drew a line in the sand and began to call us Mexicans and Native Americans. But uh, like uh, Dante, that, that's all tribal people. But uh, we get to dance in our powwows and celebrate, come together with other like-minded and like-hearted people to celebrate our ancestry. And, um, and opportunities like this to be on the, the show with you help expand that and grow that for us. So thank you for having me today. Thank you for being with us. That is Charles Robertson of the Tennessee Archaeological Advisory Council. Also with him were Sally Wells, president of the Native American Indian, Indian Association, and Dante Reyna from Vanderbilt Indigenous Scholars Organization. Thank to you all for coming on the show. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Hopefully you were able to learn something. Tomorrow, baseball is back. And yes, Nashville may not have a major league team, but we've got some rich baseball history in this town. So stay tuned. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. And tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Lake Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.